welcome to Project A Plus. Um, my name my name's Hukins, and I'm I'm joined no. by Hunterkins. <laughs> oh God, which one of us is the uh, father, and which one of us is the uh, boyfriend? Do you think? Because obviously the podcast is Veronica. Well, I'm the older, so I have to be Hiram Lodge. Mm. Clearly, because and true. you're a ginger, so you're Archie. so I'm Archie. <laughs> Great. This week we're going to talk mostly about the Mission Impossible franchise in honor of Mission Impossible Six Fallout being recently released. I think it's just called. I think it's just called Mission Impossible Fallout. It is, but I just gave it a, a number denomination to assist our audience. Assist our audience doing what? <laughs> to know where it fits in the franchise, numerically speaking. That's very important. Yes, we're going to talk about the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, we would talk about all of them in great detail, but uh, did not rewatch all of them. I only watched three of them. We will still talk about all of them in great detail because I did watch all of them. You will talk about all of them in great, great detail. Having done my due diligence for this episode. Hey, they weren't easily streaming like they were for, for you. I almost bought a copy of Mission Impossible 3 on Blu-ray, but uh, it was pretty scratched up, so I didn't buy it. It's called Put Locker. Uh, I didn't wanna, don't want to break the law. I'm a good boy. I'm older than you. I should I should have more moral conflicts about breaking the law because I grew up in the physical media age. Because you grew up in Australia, the law was so... Actually, I suppose that counts against me because especially prior to these current streaming services and this current era, we were always the last to get anything. So there was so much of an incentive for Australians to break the law there was like a, a failing of infrastructure to provide the content that people would actually willingly pay for in australia but but hugh that's that's no longer the case <laughs> no it's no longer the case which ones did you rewatch? i only rewatched one of them really because i had never seen mission impossible 2 so i only rewatched mission impossible 1 uh which was which was streaming in an accessible way for me so i was able to watch that one so the new movie is called Mission Impossible Fallout. It is the sixth Mission Impossible movie. Um, it concerns Ethan Hunt, who's played by very convincingly by Tom Cruise, who is a person for the Mission Impossible Force, or Impossible Mission Force, my bad, which is a, I always thought it was international, but I think it's American spy agency. It's never really clear. Kind of varies from film to film. It's American. But there's a lot of uh, non-American agents that are a part of it. <laughs> I guess it's sort of true of like the CIA or whatever too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like as, as, as in I watched like all six of these things within a relatively short amount of time. And I never got the impression that it wasn't ostensibly based in America. They still have an international network. Again, like you said, the CIA do. So. But, why, but why does it exist at all if the CIA exists? So the CIA does all the military coups <laughs> <laughs> in foreign countries. And, and the impossible mission first do their little bespoke impossible missions <laughs> occasionally. Uh, anyway, so back to Mission Impossible Fallout. So in this, in this one, he's, he's an operative. Uh, there's not really much to him. He's a guy. He's Tom Cruise. Yeah. The world is imperiled after uh, three plutonium cores get stolen from him, and he has to make them not go off. Along the way, he encounters the old foe of Solomon Wayne, a great name from uh, the previous film, Rogue Nation. And he also must uh, deal with the fact that the CIA is uh, suspicious as uh, they always are in these movies, uh, which I think every movie, I think, either features the government disavowing 
uh, the Mission Impossible Force or there being a rogue Mission Impossible Force agent. But MI2 might be the only film in which Ethan Hunt's team doesn't have to go like off book yeah. for a period of the film or something. Yeah, I think that's true. They like, literally repeat the same plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. so funny. Uh, but... Uh, anyway, so he does that, and there's a bunch of action scenes, and that's kind of the movie. Is that right? Did I do a decent enough job of summarizing it? Yeah, like Tom Cruise is a spy, and he has to save the world. <laughs> yeah, I think is it's pretty much pretty much it. Is this film? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are machinations within that. There's you know espionage, double crossing, and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, he has to save the world, and that's what. And happens. then he does. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um. Uh, 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 so now, now we've reached the part of the podcast which you've been uh, eagerly awaiting for the entire, I guess, weeks at this point, uh, which is, um, so Hugh, you've kept me on tinder hooks about what you think about this movie. <laughs> and I'm going to gently lift you off the tinder hooks now. <laughs> oh, thank God. I'm just something like E.G. the killer. <laughs> um, well, wait, wait, before, wait, wait, I'm going to put you back on the tinder hooks for a second. Ah, ah, it hurts, <laughs> they hurt. <laughs> Can you tell me what you think my reaction to this film would be uh i'm gonna say you liked it but you didn't like it as much as the majority of people seem to like it you're close ah so i did i did like it and i probably liked it somewhere within range of the more enthusiastic uh reviews i've read huh i thought you would have been having a more mixed reaction to it so I thought I thought I might have had a more mixed reaction because I wasn't that impressed with Chris McQuarrie's previous entry in the franchise, um, Rogue Nation. Or I was, but we'll talk about that later. There's not much to complain about, honestly, with what you're getting with this film. Everything is well staged. Um, it avoids a lot of the trappings of similar style blockbusters uh, in other franchises, not necessarily Mission Impossible franchise. And it's a good time. I do have more to say about it, but yeah, my, my reaction is pretty positive. Yeah, so is mine. So is mine. It's definitely on the upper tier of Mission Impossible films for me. Yeah, I definitely think it's one of the better ones. Uh, yeah, like you said, it's just, it's very well made. It's fun and funny. Uh, the action scenes are very entertaining. And um, like, I feel like a lot of films, they get praised for their action. Like, this is something that I feel about actually about uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Where if that film for me just feels like a bunch of like action scenes that are like barely stitched together with a script, right? Hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't particularly care for the movie for that reason. Well, this one, uh, the action scenes have like a very sort of uh, good like logic to how they're like put together in sequence. You know, I I think this film does an excellent job with making it feel like a coherent narrative when in fact it literally is set piece after set piece after set piece. <laughs> yes, yes. But the set pieces feel like they dovetail together in a way that feels right. There's a there's a logical flow to it. That, so that you barely notice that there's there's no fat in the film. It's just like action all the way through, really. Yeah, pretty much. And there's like maybe like one scene where they like stop and like have some fun with the masks, which is my favorite element of all the Mission Impossible films, like by far. I mean that 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 sequence still feels like its own little set piece. It's just not quite an action set piece. No, that's true. But yeah, it's just it's it's just an incredibly well put together film. And again, like all the actions is very well cleanly directed. Like it doesn't have any like shaky camera or any nonsense like that. No, no. Um, so I think I think in some respects it succeeds because of how elemental it is. Um, so after having watched the whole breadth of the franchise within the last week, 
you realize pretty quickly that each entry is just a different configuration of the same core elements um, up to a point. I think in the case of, of MI6 Fallout, it works because of how it puts those elements together. So you you get a series of set pieces, you get skydiving, you get car chasing, culminating in cliffhanging and bob diffusing. <laughs> like it's just these really straightforward action tropes but done in such a satisfying as you said clean way that it's kind of irresistible clean but also like completely absurd <laughs> the the climax of the film is probably my favorite like i don't try to think of an action movie climax that i've liked more than that just because it's like it pushes the uh the stakes of the scene so high because it's like not only does <laughs> Do they have to defuse two bombs, but they also have to get this detonator from from him, and they have to do it while there's a like they have to wait till the bombs are gonna explode first. It's just like all these like little things that are just like, why would anyone design a system like this? Yeah, and like the it, it's a helicopter chase. He's in the wrong helicopter. He has to chase down the other helicopter. Of course, he's gonna take it. goes over a mountain and yeah. you know. It just keeps on escalating to this degree that's just like amazingly crazy. It's very good. What I liked is that that was just like so stripped back to the core of what makes a cliffhanger a cliffhanger. It's just the actual cliffhanger. Yeah, just cliffhanging, yeah. But I think what's interesting about this film, I mean, it a lot of the action is not silly, at least in terms of its setting. I think one of the flaws of the, of the whole franchise has been the climaxes the last two entries prior to this one have poor climaxes especially ghost protocol there's a goofy climax set in like a car manufacturing plant and it isn't it a car park i'm not it's a futuristic car park or something like it, i don't know it's it's i'm not i wasn't really sure what it was supposed to be but it's it didn't look like anything that existed in the world it i just like a, i barely remember that movie at all <laughs> so you get that you get that james bond kind of feeling and mi5 uh rogue nation i know i actually i actually like the climax of, of rogue nation but that had some silly sequences like the underwater stuff <laughs> that seems great <laughs> But we're not talking about this. We're talking about Mission Impossible. Fallout. Which takes you out of it. Whereas in MI6, all the set pieces are just based on basic elemental things, like a, a stri- straightforward skydive into a city, a motorcycle chase through Paris. Now that motorcycle chase is great. Helicopter chase uh, maybe is a bit silly, but yeah. it's still like just going into a normal landscape. It's just a normal landscape. It's not like... It's not like a silly mansion or a futuristic setting or anything like that. I do like I do like that this film features uh, every kind of chase, right? <laughs> because it's like there's a foot chase, there's a car chase, there's a motorcycle chase. There's the, <laughs> they they're in trucks at one point, the motorcycle, the helicopter. All this is is like a plane to plane chase, <laughs> and obviously you have to go to space in the next one. <laughs> The requisite um, Moonraker installment. <laughs> I don't know that so much. We should probably mention, as everyone who has ever reviewed this has, that uh, Chris McQuarrie is the only director who has returned to the franchise. Everyone else has just been a one and done. He's kind of a he's like Tom. He's like basically Tom Cruise. Cruise is like go to guy at this point. Yeah, because he did Jack Reacher, right? He did, and he wrote. He co-wrote Edge of Tomorrow. He does. He does a lot of like script work for him too. Like uh, he he did a pass on the Mummy script, apparently. So he's probably a Scientologist. 
Yeah. One would assume. Though maybe not. Does it uh, hamper your enjoyment of the song to know that uh, Tom Cruise basically uses, like, slave labor? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I do yeah. actually have an uneasy... Like, the whole franchise feels like an amazing PR campaign that has salvaged Tom Cruise's reputation from being a, a psychotic couch puncher. Yeah, to, I mean, I don't know if I... Because it's so, it's so long that, like, when it started, it, it, he had no need of uh, having his PR. But I feel like even three is like, uh, oh, you see this guy be a complete nutball uh, regarding his relationships, so we're going to make a movie where he's in a healthy romantic relationship. <laughs> But I don't think it, it. I didn't. It didn't quite have as big a splash as four did in terms of his reputation, at least. And definitely in terms of box office, I think three is the lowest grossing one. Yeah, and four was kind of like everyone going, "Oh yeah, we enjoy Tom Cruise running around. Like that. This is great." So yeah, there is that uneasy thing that it, it, it's like enabling. His yeah, just certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I guess putting that aside. We're a very ethical show here. <laughs> one of the things that that I didn't enjoy about uh, Rogue Nation was there was a certain lack of distinction compared to some of the other entries in the franchise. A distinction in what sense? Well, in the sense that, you know, you could really tell the director from the way that they tackle this franchise. Oh, yeah. Well, but he, I don't think he's as a as a distinctive as, as of a director as... No, he's more of a journeyman kind of director, at least in at least in the previous one. Well, did you, you watched Jack Reacher, right? Yeah, I did, which, I mean, it was fine. What? Jack Reacher's great. I didn't like it that much. Oh, uh, you're crazy. But in this one, he is a little bit more distinct, uh, especially visually. He seems to be interested in playing around with light, and it does give a sense of cohesion. Uh, I mean, he, he goes a, a little bit heavy on the lens flares. Like, he was obsessed with lens flares, or at least his cinematographer was. It's funny, because that's what J.J. Abrams has always had the reputation for doing. But... There's also just some nice decisions to set a lot of the scenes near dusk, which which gives a really nice visual backdrop to to some of these spy goings on. I think, yeah, I agree. Which I enjoyed. So it visually, it definitely cohered a lot better than Rogue Nation. Uh, Rogue Nation seemed quite enthralled to Ghost Protocol in terms of what that established, and this one seems to be. Stepping into its own a little bit more. Yeah. I just, you know, I would argue with you, but I just don't even remember. Because I, I really liked Rogue Nation when I saw it, and I did not care for Ghost Protocol, and I'm not really sure why that is. So I probably need to revisit them to find out my opinion. And again, this is kind of a legacy of, of Ghost Protocol, perhaps, as well. But I haven't been that fond of the humor in these films and the Simon Pegg stuff. And, I mean, there's, like, an introductory scene with Simon Pegg in this entry, which has that kind of core audience baiting quality who, you know, are aware of the characters and their reputations and stuff, which put me offside. Are you doing but, the very opening scene or...? No, yeah, no, yeah, where they're, where they're about to meet um, to get the plutonium. That type of blockbuster humour, I, I really don't enjoy. You're just, you're just too smart to fall for that sort of... Yeah. I'm way, I'm way too superior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think one of the best moments in this film is a joke, and that's um, when Simon Pegg is navigating Cruz remotely as he's running to chase down a target. And uh, Pegg is not aware that he's actually running through the higher stories of a building, and he thinks he's on, he's on the ground level. Um, so it gets to this point where he's directing him in, in a particular direction, 
which requires Cruz to break and jump through a window to a lower level. And he just questions why uh, Cruz hasn't moved. And this is unfortunately ruined by the trailer in its entirety, but it's a nice moment where Cruz is like, I'm about to jump out a window. So I, I need a moment to regroup and spray himself. I, I, like that's, I like that that's the one moment in the film where Tucker's actually seems incredulous about something he's about to do. Yeah, exactly. Because everything else, he's like a superhuman, essentially. And this is the, I, I thought that was a really clever and funny inclusion. Yeah, that's fun. What did you think about the Wolf Blitzer cameo? <laughs> do you know who that is? No. Oh, he's like a news anchor. He's like the news anchor at the beginning. Do you enjoy that opening, that sequence? I always like the mask stuff, as I've said. I like the mask stuff, although it does it does present a little bit of a problem in terms of the logic of, of these films, because if, if they can, like, convincingly be any character, uh, yeah. you kind of wonder why they don't do it all the time, yeah. like, well, constantly. Uh, yeah. Like, why are they even ever, like, showing their own faces? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I would love it if, like, at the last movie, like, Tom Cruise just takes off his face and just, like, wait, he's been another person this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> if we talk about this as like an American version of the Bond franchise, and it's increasingly becoming that way, there will be a point where they'll have to replace Tom Cruise, and they could literally do that. Well, they tried doing that with uh, Jeremy Renner and it Ghost Protocol. That was the initial pitch for that film. Really? Yeah. Which obviously not the best idea. But. I, li- I, I kind of like the fact that Jeremy Renner is the guy you don't care about in yeah. these blockbusters. He's like the guy you don't care about in Avengers. He's the guy you don't care about in the Bourne franchise for that one installment. Yeah. <laughs> he's the guy you don't care about in Mission Impossible. Or, but I get even better in the Bourne one because he's like the guy that in the text of the film that no one cares about. <laughs> <laughs> that, that movie is so funny because it's like it's been the entire time talking about how important like jason ford is it's like <laughs> it's almost like the uh the poochie episode the poochie show it's like why why are they talking about the fireworks factory they keep on talking about jason ford why are they why are they getting to jason ford <laughs> oh yeah they could replace him literally and they could do that with exactly the, the scene you said like ripping up tom cruise's face and it's just the next actor <laughs> like, like, funny. Like, doctor who regeneration <laughs> I, I don't think it, i don't think it'll survive past this phase will survive past cruise like maybe they'll make like one where he's like the the uh john voight character that should be kind of fun if they did that they like literally just did the plot of one but we're with tom cruise playing or being the john voight character but I, honestly, I don't know who they would replace him. Like, there's no one that really has a Tom Cruise-ish uh, uh, persona nowadays. Like, he's so, like, kind of old-fashioned, right? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I go back and forth between this. Sometimes, like, I think, like, what he brings to the franchise is a good thing. And I think I think he serves the franchise well. Well, it's certainly, just, it's certainly the distinctive thing, right? Like, that's it. It's very different from James Bond, if you use that comparison. Right. In that, in that, the where the actor is not as important as the character, but if we're in Mission Impossible, where the actor is the character essentially. No, well, in James Bond, I think the actor who plays James Bond brings more charisma to the role, and that's kind of part of it. Like, I mean, there is the whole established idea of James Bond that sits separate to the actor, which is a bit different to Ethan Hunt because he's always been defined by Tom Cruise to this point. But most of the people who have ever played James Bond are kind of cast to give off this aura, whether it's that that's kind of sexual energy that Sean Connery has. <laughs> and there's the, the creepy, uh, this is your dad trying to pick up children energy that... Uh, <laughs> Roger Moore. Roger Moore. 
Probably my one criticism of this film, if I was to criticize anything. But you can't because it's perfect. It's a genuinely hard film to criticize for what it sets out to do, I think. Like, it, it just does it well. Um, I, I thought the resolution of the storyline with his wife, who's first introduced in Mission Impossible 3, and there's this whole series of events that sort of underscore how difficult it is to have a normal love life when you're an international spy. You're putting your loved one in danger all the time, stuff like that. And she becomes a target. But the, the way they attempt to resolve this in this entry is a little bit toothless. By essentially, essentially she says, actually, you putting me in danger was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'm now I'm married to someone else, so you don't need to worry about me ever again. It's uh, <laughs> As, as uh, Alicia put it, she's married to the hippie version of Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Wes Bentley is playing the same character that he plays in uh, American Beauty? <laughs> he should have looked out a window like <laughs> the plastic bag. <laughs> that would be so funny. My criticisms, I guess, relate to the way the female characters are treated in this narrative a little bit. Yeah, like the British intelligence spy. And as an, as an aside, it is fitting that British intelligence are introduced in the MI5 and MI6 entries in the franchise. That's funny. But who is, who's given like a pretty like major role in those fifth film. Yeah, she's given a major role and she, she does return from the previous film. Um, but there's like this moment in which Ving Rains like basically tries to convince her to walk away from the action so she's not a distraction for Tom Cruise. <laughs> But I mean, you see what you saw what happens when he gets obsessed with the woman. Mission Impossible Two happens, so <laughs> <laughs> the best entry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, are we gonna do a ranking of the Mission Impossible films at the end of this? Yeah, I, I think I think we'll give it a shot. Okay. <laughs> you put Mission Impossible Two in front of me until we end the podcast. <laughs> Anything else you did to say we'll follow up? Is that if you extinguish it? It's a very enjoyable film. I would definitely go check it out. It's it, uh, like I, I, I have to tell you my wacky story that happened to me when I saw it the first time, which is uh, uh, I saw it with my brother and his girlfriend and my girlfriend, and because of where we were. All right, we get it. You've all got girlfriends. <laughs> Shut up, you. <laughs> Just because you're lonely doesn't mean everyone else is. Uh, anyway. So because of where I work and where my brother's girlfriend works, we went to what, the... What, the girlfriend factory? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a factory whose girlfriend would, would stay with you. Um, what about so? <laughs> so would break up with you. <laughs> God, the... Oh my God, we didn't even talk about this when we talked about so. But the, the, the idea of having like a robot girlfriend is so creepy. <laughs> Just like this, like, obsequious, like, uh, person who just does it every... Oh, my God, it's so weird. It's Especially a, one you made yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like, it's like she's a pet, but she's a... <laughs> You've engineered it to be able to fall in love. And it's like, what? This, this, this robot fell in love with me? What a, what a, well, what, how unexpected that was. This robot I designed thinks I'm the best thing in the world? What? <laughs> Oh, definitely did. This robot that I used some of my the memories of my ex girlfriend. <laughs> we should just do another Zoe episode, honestly. We'll, we'll, we'll try and see where Zoe slots into the ranking of the Mission Impossible franchise. 
<laughs> at the top, right? It wouldn't really be fair to include it. Yeah, to of the, course. Yeah. It's not really fair to include it with other films, really. No, no. Um, it's like the Citizen Kane of films. <laughs> that was a good joke. Anyway, okay. So we were at the uh, AMC Theater in Times Square, which is obviously not the first choice for anyone. Uh, and I would not recommend going there because the movie was so loud. <laughs> like... Like you're, it felt like we were at like a large con- or like a concert essentially. That's how loud the movie was, just too loud. But there was a uh, about midway, midway through the or not midway, but like at the opening of the film, right after uh, Ethan like uh, does the little. Uh, this is why it was, it, it was this really concerning thing that happened, which is as soon as he does the mission accepted thing, he puts his finger on the uh, the sensor or whatever, and then the message self destructs. Uh, the this you know how the smoke like comes out of the the thing or whatever so like right after that happened uh something someone in the first row that was sitting in front of us uh pointed up an aerosol can right and there's just this spray of aerosol <laughs> like this long spray of aerosol and it's just like well we're gonna die i guess uh but it turns out it was a woman in the front in the front row who was uh, drinking during the movie and wanted to cover the fact that she was <laughs> drunk. <laughs> and uh, she did it again, at which point someone said, cut it out. And uh, at the end of the film, she very loudly walked out of a row. It's like, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> so there you go. That was my, that's my story. That is funny. But yes, yeah, so good movie. Go see it. I think if you have any inclination towards... Like seeing a blockbuster, like if you're in the mood for seeing a blockbuster, you you couldn't you couldn't really see anything else that would give you the same satisfaction. I think sometimes when there's just so much money involved in a production, especially the more effects like or artificial effects driven one, like the Marvel films and stuff, it's really hard to avoid that uh, sense of exhaustion uh, when you're watching it. At least certainly for me. Um, and this this did not have that at all. Even though I think it stretched beyond the two hour mark, right? Like, as they tend to do, it just whisks by because everything is relatively contained. Um, no cities explode and collapse. So, um, I mean, it does ramp up to the whole cliffhanging helicopter chasing bomb defusing stuff. But everything leading up to that is relatively contained. So it feels like a genuine conclusion. Whereas some of those other films have that three-act, four-act problem. Yeah, the action scenes, the way they escalate, definitely feels like it's it's ramping up. Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have that problem of, like, you, you get this, like, artificial climax and then a subsequent climax that tries to one-up that that just ties you out. This is just, like, everything neatly leads up to this great helicopter chase and... Uh, were you happy as I was that they, they seemed to have gone back to the, the well of uh, having one of the other series... Uh, Staples, be, your staples being uh, gruesome deaths. Yeah, I mean, the the one you compared it to doesn't quite beat that lovely shot of Emilio Estevez getting his <laughs> yes, head impaled. so <laughs> fucked up. But it is close, because it's basically the same, like, uh, construction, right? It's similar. It's, it's, not, it does, it's not as visceral in the moment it happens. No. Well, there's no stabbing. Like, it's a blunt force in this case. But he's still, like, looking at the thing. <laughs> uh, does that lead us neatly to the film in question, finally? Yeah, yes, the, the first Mission Impossible.
I was of the right age because I'm old to have seen the original Mission Impossible film when it first came to cinemas as an impressionable youth. And this is quite an interesting installment because it immediately tries to pull the rug out from under you. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a deconstructionist version of the original, you know? <laughs> I think Cruz is, like, really de-emphasized uh, on the opening sequences, too. I don't know, like, there, there doesn't really feel like there's a main character for the first, like, 20 minutes or so of the film until all the other ones die, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's an amazing sequence, and it was really memorable to me when I was 10. Especially because, like, you you recognized some of the faces of the team, especially Emilio Estevez, my favorite guy from the Mighty Ducks franchise, among others. So you kind of take it as read that, okay, this is the team that is going to be the heroes for this film. And maybe one of them will die tragically at a later stage of the film, but to have them all (laughs) dispatched so early on and so effectively, it's so well staged. Like it's a a great atmosphere where there's the mist over the river and and all that sort of stuff. At least the first two thirds of this film are pretty rock solid. I mean, the the most important thing it establishes in, in terms of the franchise as a whole actually i mean it really establishes all the core tropes yeah but to- but tonally it's quite different it is it's more like an espionage film and de palmer is playing with the audience more right yeah and it's a piece of like conspiracy thrillers more than like the action action uh films that for most of it it's more like a thriller and then it kind of lapses into an action film by the end rather unsuccessfully i must add I, 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 I think I disagree with you. I enjoyed the last sequence. Certainly has aged badly. Yeah. <laughs> I think. But I, to be honest, I find, I find that, uh, I find the, the cheesy, like, terrible CGI to be uh, charming in its own way, almost. Like, it, it does, it does, like, have a schlock appeal, but it, it kind of jars with the rest of the film, which, which really haven't aged much at all. Yeah. I, I think, and I think there are parts of the, the climax that function well, too. Like, I like that, um... <laughs> John Boy's character just like murders just his wife like just really coldly. Apparently, like, the John Boy character is like the main character on the TV series, so it's pretty funny that they're like this guy's the bad guy now. Or almost, it almost works. In, it almost works in like a thematic way, right? And like I, I also I, I like that um on, like the other films where it's like Tom Cruise is, or Ethan Hunt's like a just a moral morally beyond reproach, right? Uh, and this film, it definitely feels like he could turn out to be sort of a John Voight-ish character. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's a parallel drawn there. And I think it's, like, very meaningful in, like, a, almost like a political way. Which is strange to say about a blockbuster. But it definitely it definitely does not take a uh, necessarily positive view of American intelligence like the other films do. No. But nonetheless, it does contain all the ingredients that would be used in various configurations in, in each subsequent installment. So we've got the futuristic technology, which I guess the Bond type stuff, like some sort of technology that is beyond what you could do at the time of the making of the film. Yes, though I feel like I feel like uh, on a Bond where one of the key things is like, what gadgets is he going to have now? Like, it's pretty consistent in, it, in the technologies of that. Like, there are like some new stuff that introduces, but for the most part, it's just like, this is it. Masks and stuff. So you've got that. You've got the globe trotting. So it does take place at various exotic locales you've got the duplicity masks and you've you've got the thing that they have stubbornly stuck to for almost every entry maybe mission impossible 2 is an exception because i can't quite remember but there's the daring heist or job that they have to do while undercover for the bad guys and in the first one it's a heist to get the data with all the agents details in it i like the fact that in the first movie it's the stakes are, like, high, but they're also kind of, like, low in comparison to, like, 
the rest of the films. Well, just like every other film is like, oh, if he doesn't do this, then... Yeah, it wasn't necessarily like the world is going to explode. But no, it's just this guy's going to get some money and maybe like the American intelligence would be uh, uh, trammeled a little bit. Compromised. Yeah. yeah. So you've got that high sequence which is amazingly done yeah it's so good it's, just, it's this perfect blending of like uh both like just really high tension stuff like mix and then this this like a weird straight up like poop comedy too or vomit comedy <laughs> yes that's true you kind of take it for granted because it, it it sort of seeped its way into popular culture and has been taken off so many times when you go back and watch that sequence nothing in the rest of the series compares well, that's because, I mean, that, I just feel like De Palma, at least for me, is, like, the best filmmaker who's made one of these movies, like, by far. Yeah, certainly certainly in terms of the, their whole body of work, that would be the case. But it also has the going rogue stuff, because there's a point where Ethan Hunt has to go rogue, and then there's a goofy action set piece at the end. So it really does have all the the elements, but it just... It, but it's quite different from the other films in a lot of ways. Yes, and it just feels... I mean, it feels more of like a De Palma film than... I think the other films, they bear the artistry of Tom Cruise more than they bear the artistry of, like, the specific directors that make them. Yeah, people have called him the sort of secret auteur of, of the franchise. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's basically true. But I feel like he is subsumed into De Palma's aesthetic and thematic concerns for the most part in this movie. And I, and I think... John Wood is pretty much does yeah, his own that's thing. that's true, that's true. <laughs> For better and worse, he does his own thing. I think even the um, content of the second one is more driven by Cruz's desires to make like a, a character than, than John Woo's. Like, even if the visually it does definitely speak to his style more than, I don't know. But yeah, in terms of that final showdown, that felt to me like speed, really. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It, feel, it feels like... The uh, climax of speed is sort of being shoved on this espionage thriller. <laughs> uh, it's almost like Fallout is like we gotta we gotta prove that Ethan Hunt kid, kid is not ever gonna be defeated by helicopters because he always gets defeated by one in the, in the first movie. <laughs> I just I love the absurdity of like oh my god his throat's almost gonna get cut by the helicopter blades. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like come on. <laughs> But I think the, 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 the transition from one to two is interesting because in the first film, Ethan Hunt is really humorless and he's going through like an intense experience the whole film. He's never smiling. And throughout all of MI2, he, he has a grin on his face, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which says it all. <laughs> I love the introduction in MI2 where he's, he's rock climbing. Yeah. It's so great. It's so, it's so great. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's sort of like the. Star. I think that's the uh, other, other the the the, the uh, thing that features in all of them besides one is like Tom Cruise doing crazy stunts where he's like doing his yeah. own stunts. Well, the extreme sports. Kind yeah, of which I don't remember if it features in three or not. So that would be the other exception, but definitely a president too. <laughs> and my mom loves that scene. Yeah, it's it, it's a actually really great opening. It's funny because I caught some of this on TV years ago. I never watched it all. Like, I was like, this is, like, absolutely terrible, <laughs> especially the Australian scenes. <laughs> How your tastes have changed. But now, now I loved all of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the good-bad uh, entry of the Mission Impossible movies. It's just so, it's so cheesy. It's got some really bizarre sexual politics. And you said this off air, but it it is the most overt 
Bond yeah, yeah. ripoff. <laughs> um, and it definitely feels like the lesser Pierce Brosnan entries. But uh, as I said on Twitter, I definitely prefer this to all the Pierce Brosnan Bonds. But yeah, this it's just uh, it features all the things you want from a, a Bond home, just like an exotic locale where the majority of the action is set. Uh, in this case, uh, the place that you're from, Australia. <laughs> uh, like, characters who are in this film and then don't show up in any of the other ones besides besides Luther. I guess it's sort of like the uh, M of the... Luther is the, the only one, aside from Tom Cruise, who's been in every entry in some form. Yeah, uh, what's the, it's the guy who makes his device Q, is that right? Yeah, Q. He's the Q of this, this series, that's a joy. Well, no, I mean... The thing is, though, like, he's introduced as the tech guy, right, in MI1. He's the guy, the hacker guy. And then Simon Pegg eventually gets folded into the franchise. And they both have the same function. So they kind of just, it's kind of awkward that why they're both there. Yeah, it is a little weird. And I guess, I guess Fawn's the only one that justifies them both being there because they need two tech guys to defuse your bombs. Yes, yes. <laughs> um... But yeah, uh, but yeah, there's like a there's a Bond girl and and Thady Newton who is, who is like very important for the first like uh, maybe hour and a half of the film and then has no lines for the remaining eighty bit of the film. They introduce her as like oh maybe she will be like you know a female character with agency in this film because they're going to hire her as like a master thief and then immediately he's like no we just want her to go back with her previous boyfriend and spy <laughs> yeah. on and you know submit to his sexual advances it's, it is it is crazy that there's not like a there's not a female character with like agency until the fifth movie essentially because <laughs> like in every other one it's like the female character is only used <laughs> to get to Ethan Hunt <laughs> or it's like yeah like a no no M- M- MI4 has has one. Oh yeah uh Paula Patton that's right oh, I forgot about her she's also not in the movies but yeah 2 is very pleasurable in like a very goofy way like uh, John Will I think I think a lot of his American films are like uh underrated as like entertainments yeah and partly because they are so dated like even at the time they were dated yeah. <laughs> there's there's something so like 90s about them uh i, I do i do like the uh, with biscuit soundtrack a lot that's probably the worst part of this movie actually <laughs> <laughs> we're like yeah like everything else is like charmingly quaint essentially we're, like charmingly 90s and the, the whip biscuit and the metallica it's like oh yuck <laughs> uh music by hans zimmer your favorite com- composer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and written written by my favorite screenwriter as well <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he wrote that. It's so funny. Yeah. So it's so it's uh, Brandon Braga, right? And yeah, uh, Ronald D. And, Moore, right? Yeah. Who did? He wrote Star Trek. Star Trek and Ronald D. Moore famously went on to do Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. And Brandon Braga wrote for our favorite television series, uh, The Orville. Yes. Yes, he did. But the the actual screenplay credit solely goes to Town somehow. <laughs> I genuinely can't imagine much to have survived. <laughs> I would because like I definitely you can definitely feel his fingerprints on the um the first one. I guarantee that both the story and Robert Town's screen were probably vastly different for what what ended up on screen. Maybe Tom Cruise ghostwrote it himself. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. This is definitely the one where he appears like the most like heroic, you know. And I, I like that he tries to make him because like one of the things that uh, is interesting about these films is that for the most part uh, he's pretty like sexually neutered, you know. Yeah, this is the only one where he slips into the the Bond Lothario mode. <laughs> yeah, which does not fit him very well, I must say. No. <laughs> um, 
But it's just, it's so, it's so strange. And like, I guess Lady Newton's like fine or whatever. Yeah, she's fine. Um, but I will say, I think, I think this movie is like way too long. Like if it was an hour and a half, I would think it would be like my favorite movie, I think. But it does get better as it goes along. Like the, the climax is great. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> like that, the, 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 up until when he like lands on that bizarre like island is like basically perfect. And there's a great shot that I, I messaged you about where like, uh, Tucker's like blows up a, a doorway. He's about to assault, uh. Jiggery Scott, who plays, like, the evil Tom Cruise. He's, like, stylized to look like Tom Cruise. <laughs> Just funny. Um, and he, uh... <laughs> he pulls up the doorway, the doorway's, like, on fire. It's just reflected in his glasses as he, like, runs past. And there's just a slow motion shot of, like, Tom Cruise just, like... Like, very serious face, just, like, walking through the fire. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So some people have said, like... You know, John Woo can be somewhat limited as a director and he just recycles a lot of his favorite elements. But I mean, I think he does something really daring here with uh, the doves. Like, I don't think that's something he's ever done. It's <laughs> just an interesting as, element to see that uh, in a John Woo. As film. I, uh, the great joke they have made on, tw- on Twitter uh, maybe the doves have the final pass of the screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He uses this this radical technique where he slows down the film. <laughs> and it, it, I, I, do you know if you know, did you know that if you give a character a character two guns and have them jump through the air in slow motion, that makes the book really cool. I don't think he's ever used that one either. <laughs> you know, I've only seen his American films. I've never seen like anything that he's directed that's not uh, like Face Off or, or uh, what's the one with um, John Travolta? Um, Broken Arrow. Yeah, no, I've, never, I've seen that. Uh, I've never seen, like, The Killer or anything else. Or Hard Boiled. Or... Nope. Or A Better Tomorrow. There's doves in them. <laughs> Spoiler. What? <laughs> <laughs> Might as well not watch them at this point. I do like, again, I like, I like how, like, I, I really do enjoy, like, the bizarre, like, sexual politics of this film, too. Like, there's a great, bizarre, creepy scene where Degree uh, uh, Scott uh, pretends to be Tom Cruise and tells. Uh, uh, what's her name? Thady Newton, who is his former like love interest, to like do whatever he tells her to do, which is just like really mm. creepy and gross. Um, and this movie has, I will say, uh, knocking it to has like the worst mask stuff. I think, like it's not that it's not that fun. No, but what what quality do you find so appealing about this movie? I guess is my question. It's definitely like the off brand. It definitely feels like almost like not of a piece of the rest of them yeah yeah it definitely definitely does um that's why it it kind of it kind of really cements as a franchise after the first two like the first two are kind of quite different and then it settles in to a particular style really although three is a bit different as well but we'll we'll talk about that but it's fun and it's it's got a, a much lighter tone than the first one certainly and and then the subsequent one also and the final action scene is both ludicrous and well staged and fun so it kind of justifies everything in the film i always, I always love it in uh in movies where the the main character in action movies where the main character is so hesitant to kill like the villain but they'll kill like millions of the of the, the henchmen it's just it's such, a, such a weird morality being portrayed there and it's also it's also so bizarre and like uncharacteristic for this franchise that there's just this extended sequence where um, Tom Cruise and the bad guy are just duking it out hand to hand on the beach. <laughs> yeah, on the beach. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Tom Cruise has multiple flying kicks. Yes. <laughs> did you enjoy? Did you enjoy watching yourself die on screen? Yes, I did. Yes, played by Australia's own. Um, uh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Richard Roxenborough, or something like that. Richard Roxborough. Yeah, thank you. Um, did you enjoy the director of Swim Fan? <laughs> Played the. Yes, the, the starter of Trope Fest. The person who will award me my winning <laughs> for that, medal. The, uh, the, the, the short film that you've yet to film. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I still have time. But, um,. I know. I thought it was a pretty worthless addition to the team. He didn't, he's terrible. He, he doesn't do anything. He's just like an Australian guy. He's like, he's like they needed a third person. Even though he is Australian, he's like an offensive portrayal of Australian. <laughs> I just like, he, like he serves no purpose. Like, why is he in this movie? Like, why was it just Ving Rhames and, and uh, Ethan Hunt? Is it because they wanted to put Ving Rhames in peril at some point? <laughs> Is he known as an actor besides? No, no, no. It's so weird. It's so weird that he guessed. Like, if he know him at all, it's like, oh, it's the guy who did Trump Fest. Yeah, he's, he's, he's totally worthless. Like, especially compared to, like, John Renault in the, in the, uh, in Mr. Possible 1, which I guess is, like, the closest comparison. Like, he just doesn't, I don't know, I don't, uh, why do they bother to put him in the movie? Is my question. That's one of the, so, uh, another thing that's good about the, um, the high sequence in Mission Possible 1 is the way the team operates together. Yeah. It's more of a, a teamwork job, even though, like, Tom Cruise gets the hero moments. Yes. But it's still everyone is playing their part. Yeah, everyone. Even though they're they're not all on the same side, really. As, as no, we it's like most but, of them are not on <laughs> the same side. <laughs> but they're all they're all kind of working together in a way that doesn't happen that often in the franchise. Like they usually they're more at the I think, periphery. I think five, while Tom Cruise. I think five kind of brings it back a little bit. Four does it actually well in terms of that skyscraper sequence. It's one of the most teamwork centric set pieces. But uh, where were we? Mission Impossible Two. Yes. Your favorite film. Great film. Yeah, I wish I wish John Woo would come back to Hollywood. The other thing I like about it is that it's so clear that Woo is not especially interested in the machinations of spying and espionage or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. He's just interested in, like, Ethan Hunt as this extreme sports action star who smiles and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and shoots guns in slow motion. There's so many slow motion gunshots. So crazy. And the motorcycle, the motorcycle chase is great. Just so many scenes of him, like, whipping his gun around and just, like, getting the perfect shot off that kills, like, a guy who's, like... Yeah. <laughs> just a great film. All right, so next one. Mission Impossible 3. You're going to do a lot of the talking here, because I saw it when it came out in theaters and then have not seen it since. And there are some images in that film that have, like, stuck with me. Like, specifically the bomb and the, the brain thing. Like, always yeah, really... Yeah, yeah. It's pretty fucked up. <laughs> So, um, MI3 is when Mr. Abrams joined the franchise. Yeah, and he's stuck with it ever since. Yeah, he's like Bad Robot has been associated with the franchise from then on. So I guess to some extent he's responsible for the shift from 2 to what it is now. Yeah, I'd say he's one of the, I mean, besides like Tom Cruise, probably one of the primary artistic forces, I guess. And uh, I think this probably has the best villain in the franchise. Played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Wait, you're, you're telling me that D. Gray Scott is not the best villain in the franchise? <laughs> Aside from D. Gray Scott. Yeah, it's kind of, there's kind of a paucity of good villains. I guess, like, I don't know, I like Solomon Wayne enough. You mean Ian Curtis? 
Ian Curtis. Yeah, he played Ian Curtis in... Oh, yeah, in 24-hour party people. I don't like that he's a ginger. So, MI3. So, Philip Seymour Hoffman, some of the best villains manages to be frightening and intense without ever, like, raising their voice or operating. Yeah, he didn't not really performing violence, too, at least at the beginning. He just exudes that. Yeah, he just exudes evil. <laughs> like I do. Like, just the way he calmly says... I mean, I guess calmly maybe is the wrong word for it, but... But control, controlled. A controlled way that he just informs um, Ethan Hunt that he is going to kill his wife and make him watch or make her watch him be murdered or whatever it was. So Abrams brings his usual predilections for high-intensity situations and his high-energy busyness in the action scenes and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot going on and there's a sort of tone um, that is certainly much more intense than this, the previous entry <clears throat> and more intense than subsequent entries really because like his wife is is in mortal danger there's like a bomb in his head it's just it's so abrams yeah for sure and he uses he uses a lot of his like his his stock writing staff who like did the uh to star trek movies and shit i i think it was the wise decision uh, in mi4 to make the franchise a little bit more fun yeah i would get that and that i think sustains it but I think it I think it works on its own, right? Because of the rest of the Yeah, it works though. as a one-off kind yeah. of entry, yeah. And I th- it has actually a really decent arc that is concluded in an interesting way. And there there are some really nice moments in it that are unexpected. So there's the requisite scene in which he has to do a heist for the bad guys. Where he gets the rabbit's foot. And yeah, and he, like which is the, the biggest MacGuffin thing. So they they focus on this acrobatic thing that he does to like get into the top of the building. But then they don't actually show what he does inside the building. They actually cut oh, to that's, that's a couple of the other characters talking in the car and having having like a bad scene together. To be honest, but it's kind of nice that you then just see Ethan Hawke burst out again with the rabbit's foot. Ethan Hawke. Ethan, um, <laughs> Ethan Hawke suddenly appears. He's like, hi, guys. But anyway, yeah, so they, they're talking in the car and then he just emerges with the rabbit's foot. And I just enjoyed the fact that they just went, we're not even going to try and compete with the one in Mission Impossible 1. Let's just forget about it. And surprisingly for Abrams, the conclusion is, like, really small. Oh. At small scale. Because he's just running through, uh, like, Bangkok, right? Yeah, there's a nice... There's a nice Tom Cruise on foot running scene. That's a uh, that's actually my favorite. Uh, Tom Cruise's Twitter bi- Twitter bio is just running in movies since 1980 something, which is uh, accurate, I think. It's PR. You can evil cult. Whatever. He's gonna die at some point. It's fine. <laughs> no, he's not. He's a Scientologist. He's high level. <laughs> but no, no, he's gonna he's gonna transcend to a new form of B. But he's still gonna. I mean, but but he's still gonna disappear from our ability to appreciate a movie. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> But does he get a new body and then he comes back to the franchise as, as the next great. incarnation? <laughs> you think Jer- they, were, they were trying to position Jeremy Renner as like his new, like Tucker is going to take over Jeremy Renner's body. <laughs> After he's running around Bangkok and then they're just in a house and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman has his wife tied up. Tom Cruise has the bomb in his head. It's been activated and it's starting to affect him. But he manages to muster the strength to tackle um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and push him out into the road. And then suddenly, as 
Tom Cruise is lying on the ground and Philip Seymour Hoffman is sort of above him. A truck just comes past and takes out Philip Seymour Hoffman, leaving only his left shoe. Yes. And you literally do not see, like, his body. He doesn't rise again. The rest of the climax is actually Tom Cruise, like, eventually losing control of his faculties and he's on the ground and he's kind of talking his wife through the process of disarming in some sort of surgery because she's a doctor but also she has to she has to take out the remaining goons with a gun so she actually does the rest of the work and it's actually a really nice small climax that's kind of satisfying on a thematic level and also satisfying because it's not like a massive explosion or anything like that which is kind of unexpected for Abrams, I guess. I, I would have expected maybe him to get, go too far. That was his, That was the first movie he directed, right? Yeah, I think so. Huh. It's surprising. It's surprising that it's so adept given that. Yeah. So it's it's quite a nice self-contained story, surprisingly. Interesting. All right. So do you remember anything else about it? Nope. I I do really like that opening scene where Carrie Russell dies, though. It's really messed up. Felicity. Huh. Like the quality and that you can have. <laughs> Did you enjoy that? <laughs> yeah. Especially like you you get you get better quality in the city, so that's why. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, very funny. Yeah. Um. So Mission Impossible Four. Another one that I have only the biggest of memories of. Um. In this time, the reins have been ceded to Brad Bird of Pixar, who people love, who I do not love. I'm indifferent towards. And obviously Abrams did a lot of the work transitioning from MI2 to MI3, but Bird also should be credited with setting the template that we have enjoyed through the next two films in the franchise, Regnation and Fallout. Yes, the sort of stunt angle that really uh, informed them. Yeah, the sort of stunt set piece. And he also introduces the cleanness which is distinct from Abrams, who has kind of a busy style. Yes. Although I think Abrams does do coherent action scenes. He does like that busyness visually and a lot of elements going on at once and some some camera shaking and all that sort of stuff. Whereas you kind of get a refreshing cleanness in MI4. The tone is less intense. It's more fun. And the color scheme is more muted and neutral which for some reason suits it really well and has been carried on in the Macquarie entries also. And I, I think it was a wise move that really enabled the success of certainly Fallout mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, Regnation. And there's actually really nice use of visuals, especially at a, a, a memorable sequence set in a dust storm. It's sort of uh, near the the famous skyscraper sequence. Oh, is it, I thought for some reason I thought it was. Is it before or after? It's after. Like after they they do that, it goes straight into the sequence in which he has a car chase um, with the villain in this dust storm, and just the visual aspect of setting it in the dust storm gives it a really nice abstraction, which I enjoy in action films. Somewhat comparable to what. Uh, Deacons does in some of the better sequences in Skyfall to go back to Bond. You know that sequence like set in, I think it's in Shanghai, silhouetted against the the lighting. It's like the best scene of the entire movie, yeah. And that kind of visual abstraction that works so well there also works really well in this scene. Uh, it's really well staged and it gives like a, a, a visual distinction. 
Um, and the the stuff in the famous stuff in the skyscraper is also well staged and fun, and it has a nice teamwork emphasis. But after those two set pieces, or that extended set piece, if you include it as one, it really sinks and never recovers. It's funny that they went from the uh, like the probably the most memorable villain in the franchise to like probably the least memorable, right? I can't even remember who the villain is. Like thinking thinking back on it now, I can't even remember. We we uh, Way Sourdough is in it, right? Uh yeah, she's in it. Can't believe that was a Zoe, a Zoe connection there. Yeah, you didn't even fucking mention it. But I forgot about. Jesus, you're you're fucking falling apart. At the time I was watching it, I was I was happy. Like I was like, yes, yeah, so <laughs> it's you. She's back. <laughs> you have Ewan McGregor at the end of Zoe. Remember when she has tears at the end of that film? Yes, I do. And then she fails to become a spy and links up the continuity with MI4. I love that. Um, or whatever she is. She's an arms ter- dealer or something. But there's this there's this terrible bit. So after that, and it's done like a lot of set pieces in a row, and there's been this great momentum culminating in that car chase. And then obviously there's that, okay, I guess we need to take the foot off the pedal and have a bit of moment of reflection before we get back into the action. Which is why one of the reasons that Fallout's so good is there's, there's, there's no moment where they take off. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't need to do that. It really doesn't. Um, it actually does it really smartly, I think, by by having a different type of set piece, which is where we get that mask stuff with Henry Cameron. Is it the best mask bit in the entire in, in all three films? All three films. All six films, whatever. I don't know anything. But, like, it, it was weird because I remembered all that so vividly. I was like, oh, maybe I don't need to watch this again because I actually remember it pretty well. But from that point, I remembered nothing <laughs> so funny. of the rest of the film. And then either I fell asleep when I originally watched it <laughs> or it was just so unmemorable in it. I, I'm leaning towards it being the latter reality because I can't even like I've I've seen it again and I can barely remember what happens for the rest of the film. Um, it, it the the final set piece which we touched on earlier is set in a futuristic car park. This always annoys me about um, like action franchises in which the bad guy is not in physical condition to match the good guy they're cast they're cast because because they're like an evil presence and they're like usually much older it's kind of the same thing with sean harris and uh rogue nation and uh yeah yeah but some somehow they can you know go toe-to-toe with tom cruise (laughs) yeah it's just just, i guess it kind of makes sense now that he's like an older man (laughs) that's like yeah i guess i can believe that's why i think i think fallout also works he's like uh, unlike Ghost Protocol, where it's like, ah, it's like a, you know, he's, he's not young, but he's still, like, spry, right? Like, in, um, it ends, a, it ends, it wins, it ends, it wins another sense of urgency to the film with Tom Cruise, like, an older man, where it's like, wow, how, this actually looks like he might die if he does this, because he's so old. <laughs> Whereas it made sense him fighting Doug Ray Scott, which is why it's the best entry. <laughs> what? <laughs> he's a Swedish actor, the the bad guy. Yeah, he's, he's in Mich- the girl with the dragon. Tattoo. He's actually dead. Yeah, he, is. he died real young. He was only fifty six when he died, so I guess he wasn't that old, but he looked old. But anyway, like it, it just doesn't make sense that the way the the shape he's in and the way the way he appears next to super fit Tom Cruise, and um, it also departs from the nice tactile set pieces of hanging around the exterior of a skyscraper or having a car chase in a dust storm. I mean, that, that's at least tangible. Yeah. But you get like a futuristic car display place and you get rockets flying through the air and it's just... Rockets? I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. It feels like James Bond, yeah, because in order to defuse the rocket, they have to launch the rocket or something. It's stupid. 
Just like in Fallout. <laughs> the room Fallout, it's great. <laughs> but yeah, so I would say overall MI4, really two-thirds or half really good, and then half not good. It's a shame. And now we move on to Rogue Nation, a film that I, I remember loving uh, and then haven't seen since I saw it then. So this is the first Macquarie entry. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think, as we've already alluded to, it's immediately the the least distinct entry. Well, for you. It feels just more like a continuation of what Bird and, to some extent, Abrams had established. Yeah. For, to me, one of the reasons I liked it is it almost feels like a culmination of the series as a whole. Rogue Nation does. That it brings all the, like, the elements that are in all of them. Well, I, I think Fallout works better as that than... than yeah, yeah, I guess so. Maybe I won't like Rogue Nation as much after I watch it again. But I really enjoyed them placing Rebecca Ferguson like the forefront of a lot of the action sequences. The 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 central plot, especially watching it so close to MI four, just it feels like a complete retread. Does it? It's a little because it's it's a little different because it's like a I don't know it's like a rogue agent versus versus is there a rogue guy in uh, Ghost Protocol? No, no, as in like them. As in like the central thing being they're being shut down oh. and they have to go rogue. Yeah, but that happens in. Which, I mean, they all do it to some extent, but it feels... But because it tonally feels so similar to the previous one, then, it, yeah, it feels less distinct. Like, it, it, it's actually really hard for me to remember what happens in that film. It's, it's, all, it's all very competent um, and decently staged, but I, I didn't really get invested in it. I really like the opera sequence a lot. I think it's really enjoyable. Yeah, the opera sequence is not bad, yeah. I like the scene where he dives in the water because again, it's just like that ludicrous action where it's like, why is this safe design this way? I think that's what Macquarie is good at is making uh, just completely absurd like suspension sequences that like still have that sense of like uh, reality to them by the way that they're like filmed sort of. Yeah, but I I think it lost that in in setting it in that underground uh, underwater facility where they with rockets flying around and stuff. I don't know whatever it was, but it just it, it was just a little bit like on the silly side i i enjoy silly action sequences so i guess that's just well i just think i just we... think there's this the strength of the I, th- I think fallout proves the strength of the franchise is is when it is more yeah grounded grounded action yeah sequences. Like, like when they it, duel it when they have dually helicopters very grounded well they become grounded <laughs> yeah eventually in, in a mountain <laughs> <laughs> i guess i guess what fallout proves is you have to build up to that ludicrous set piece as opposed yeah. to just like it happening happening midway through your movie so we only touched briefly on Rogue Nation, but maybe we can talk about it more when I rewatch it and you rewatch it. I can't. It was. It's hard for me to say much about it because it was fine. I just found it fairly flat. And I, yeah, I definitely think he really comes into his own with Fallout. Yes. Yeah, so now we're gonna rank the series, right? So do you want to go first? Okay. Wait. Let me let me think about this a bit. <laughs> I did not come for the come with this pre-prepared, I must say. Me either. So I'm doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard actually. Because it's it's a relatively consistent series. There's nothing that Yeah, it's pretty consistent. Yeah, they're all they're all they're all worth a watch, I think. I have to go with my heart. <laughs> if you put one if you put two as number one, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean like metaphor, I mean like I'm gonna come to Australia and murder you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my number six is uh, uh, Mission Possible Ghost Protocol. <laughs> uh, I just don't even, like, 
I don't know. This movie just makes so I just have no memory of it whatsoever. It just didn't make an impression on me. I did, I, but this is not like I remember after exiting the theater, just sort of being like whatever. Like it has some really, really impressive action sequences for sure. But I think as a movie, it just sort of is like whatever. Like it has great climaxes in those, in that sequence. But I just don't. I just remember feeling very blah about it when I watched it, and feel even even more so as it's faded from my memory. And I can only remember it vaguely. So that's my number six. Well, my number six. Uh, it's probably obvious because I've just been talking about it, it which is Rogue Nation, uh, which which just didn't make much of an impression on me. Uh, my number five, only from dint of me not remembering that that well, uh, is number three. <laughs> just because I do think it's a little, like, um, not exactly what I want from the series to, like, give Ethan Hunt, like, an emotional life and, like, a married life. I just, I don't know. Like, it's, it's well executed from what I can remember, but at the same time, it's, like, it's just, like, sort of whatever um i do really like philip seymour hoffman as the villain i think he's great and um i like the brain bomb stuff like a stuff like a ton mm. and I, I just i had but again i just don't remember this movie that well so uh it's whatever other positive quality might have or dwarfed by that sort of vagueness of it's about everything else so there you go okay all right well my number five is ghost protocol and yeah again you've talked about it and i've talked about it when we discussed it before but it it has great moments and the first half to two-thirds go by really well but unfortunately there's a whole other chunk of the movie that is not good (laughs) so your number four my number four is mission possible too (laughs) So I just what? <laughs> How dare I? I will kill you. I'll kill you. But, I feel like, but even putting it that high is, I feel like, is a rare uh, occurrence in people who really like the Mission Impossible franchise who tend to value like Ghost Protocol a lot. I think. Um, but I just it's balmy and crazy, and we and this is something that I wrote in my letterbox review that we didn't talk about. But I love how much the movie is just spent with Tom Cruise and his team just like looking at computer screens. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just a really daffy movie. Uh, it's, just, it's just a really enjoyable, good time. And what's your number four? <laughs> My number four is Mission Impossible 3. Similar to your reasoning, although obviously it ranks a bit higher for me, in that I don't really want to be emotionally invested in <laughs> Ethan Hunt's love life either and that sort of stuff. But it, but it's a, it's a really solid movie and as i talked about there's some interesting things it does as yeah i think it's a solid entry but i'm glad that they didn't stick with that tone after that point my number three is mission impossible your favorite one uh rogue nation (laughs) which i like uh and i like that it kind of incorporates an element of self-parody too from what i can remember and that there's a great scene at the very beginning where tom cruise is a crazy style which is like all over the marketing where he gets like he's like in the he gets or he uh, grabs onto a plane as it's taking off and like gets into it, right? If I remember correctly. But I like how it's just sort of like shunted off as like a prequel scene. Like there's no, it's just sort of like, ha, this is what this movie is. It does crazy stunts. Uh, that that I mean, maybe I'm biased by the fact that I saw those silly like viral making of videos before I saw the film. But that felt like just a stunt for a stunt's sake that didn't really fit in the film particularly for me but i kind of enjoyed it as that because it's like uh it like shut it off to that to that like one sequence and like the rest of the movie does not really have that many crazy like stunt stunt sequences for that 
Uh, as opposed to, like, uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is like, it's so crazy that he's hanging off the side of the building, right? And the the way it's constructed in, in uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and this happens too in Fallout, to a certain extent, where it's just like, this is what Ethan Hunt's, like, day-to-day life is like. He just does crazy stuff like that. And I enjoy that sort of, like, bit of characterization in there. Uh, I, it's sort of de-emphasized as, like, an yeah. amazing feat. It's yeah. just, like, yeah. business as usual. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of enjoy that, like, workman, like, just, like, Tom, uh, and Unlike, unlike, I think, I think, um, uh, Fallout sort of reemphasizes the amazing feet quality to it. Um, but yeah, I like that. It, I like how like uh, job ish the the movie makes me a spy feel, and I like I like how it reintroduces a lot of the espionage angles, which kind of get stripped away from the series in three and four, and two, two. Um, I think I think Rebecca Ferguson who plays a. Uh, uh, Ilsa Faust, the ridiculously named Ilsa Faust. It's such a great addition to the film. And I think one of the worst parts about Fallout for me is that uh, it de-emphasizes her. Um, but... Yeah, I don't think she she ends up having a great role in, in Fallout. But she's so yeah. good in Rogue Nation. She's more interesting in Rogue Nation. Yeah, and I like that it, it invests in her emotional life way more than it invests in Cruises, which is interesting. Um, and that's why it's my number three. And basically, the the remaining three movies I think are great. Like, I don't know. Anyway, so what's your number three? My number my number three is Mission Impossible One. Uh huh. <laughs> so Which I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, we've still got two more slots. Fuck you. So be patient. <laughs> well, go ahead. Uh, so Mission Impossible One is a it's a movie really it's kind of a different entry but it has like easily the best heist set piece of the entire franchise and uh a really well handled narrative up to a point and then it it it, it kind of falls apart a little bit for me but it's still a really decent entry so that's why it's number three for me or number two for you uh, my number two is Mission Impossible Fallout, which we talked about at length. Uh, it's just great. It's just a good, really entertaining, good film. I don't know what to say besides that. I just, I don't know. I enjoyed the the as the series has gone on, like how it, how uh, increasingly Tom Cruise is just Ethan Hunt in the in like the the narrative of the film. Where it's mm. become increasingly difficult to be like distinguishing between the uh, like the incredible like stunts that he's doing and the. Um, like how uh, it's positioned so like uh, obviously something that's supposed to entertain you, right? And then how that the act of like Tom Cruise doing these crazy stunts is what saves the world in the diegesis of the film. Uh, it's interesting. It definitely reaches sort of like the thematic peak here, and I find I think it's almost like uh, I, I think it's gotten better doing that as I mentioned as this, as he's gotten older because it's just sort of like there's something sort of poignant about this like older man like still doing all these crazy things to to entertain us you know <laughs> and I hope I hope he dies on the set of the next one <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually curious about how much to believe of this narrative that we keep getting fed about oh look how amazing Tom Cruise is for doing all these stunts right I mean, I think it's clear that he's shown a willingness to maybe do more than he has to, right, as a, as a stunt performer. But he's like a, a 
a huge asset, right? So the insurance companies are not going to let him get into any actual. Well, but that's why he's a producer on these. This this is why he's a producer on these films. But nonetheless, they're they're, they're not going to let him get into actual danger, right? Yeah, I mean he's wearing cables and stuff, but still, it's like. And there's obviously still going to be a stunt team who doubles for him. So like, I, I'm I'm just curious, like from a, like a, a technical perspective, like someone in the, in the stunt industry, um, or or on the inside to actually break down whether it's that remarkable what he's doing or not, honestly. Like, I don't know, like, is he is he really an exception to comparable action stars who just, like, sit in their trailer and don't, and, and don't bother? Or? He did break his ankle and make you fall out. But, I mean, like, you, you hear of, like, accidents and stuff that, that happen to stars even when they're not performing a stunt. So. But I'm just curious, like, it, it, it might be validated. Like, it, it might turn out to be that he is like doing a lot more than anyone else is willing to do um especially especially with that reputation i'm just genuinely curious like as to whether that narrative is is just great pr or it's really backed up by what he's doing it's probably it's probably somewhere it's probably somewhere in the middle right yeah i mean i like the fact that he's interested that he's at least interested in doing the stunts and yeah, but like I mean, like uh, in Mission Muscle Two, for instance, like I've read that like that's genuinely genuinely him like free climbing that. You know, obviously there's like cables that they removed in post, but still, it's like I don't know. Uh, so what was what was that num- your number two? Mission Impossible Fallout. We talked about this. And what's your number two? My number two is <laughs> Mission so Impossible. So it begins with Mission Impossible. <laughs> it ends with Fallout. <laughs> <laughs> will, will there be a Fallout if the next word out of my mouth is Fallout? Uh, Mission Impossible <laughs> Fallout is my number two. I don't believe you. Fuck you. <laughs> I was being genuine. You're just fucking trolling. Like I, I'll, I will say, like this is this is my methodology behind this ranking. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I watch them all across a, a, a week, right? One after another, and then culminating oh, in watching God. Fallout in the cinema. Mm-hmm. The one that brought me the most joy <laughs> is Mission Impossible Two. Is it the best film in the franchise? <laughs> no. I would generally this is, these are personal lists these are subjective lists so have to go with my heart uh, so what's your number one uh, the first issue possible but it doesn't matter so so I went with my heart why is that your favorite um uh, just I just like to bomb I don't know I feel like the 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 high sequence has the high sequence that language is yet to be topped in these movies which is just like a pure yep, action sequence um and i just i think that thematically this is by far the most interesting one uh and for that reason i give it top props and i i disagree that it falls apart at the end for me i actually kind of enjoy uh the transition to like ludicrous set piece in a way um even it loses some of the tightness of the uh but I like that um, visually Tom Cruise is presented as uh, as um, John Boyd's character at the very end of the film, too. And I, I don't know, DePaul just brings something so wonderful to this film that is wacky and all the other ones that I, I don't know. It's just the, the most distinctive one for me, and it's definitely the one that I enjoy watching the most. 
And there you go, that's it. <clears throat> um, so do you want to know what my number one Oh um, no, I could not possibly guess. <laughs> so my number one is uh, Mission Impossible 2. For the reasons previously stated, that it did genuinely bring me the most <sighs> pleasurable boy. viewing experience yeah, of all these films. And, and I think this is something we haven't discussed, but which is of vital importance. It features Tom Cruise's best haircut. <laughs> that is true. But he, he sort of brings it back for Ghost Protocol, doesn't he? It comes, it comes and goes. Like, so, so, so for the first one, it's like a dated crew cut kind of thing. For the second one, it's the great flowing The main, hair. yeah. For the third one, it, it, it tightens up again, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Like it goes goes back to a less dated short cut and then for the fourth one it, it kind of grows out again a bit yeah right? i don't know why are you asking me you watch these movies like this week <laughs> we'll have a look at the evolution of his haircut yeah so it, it gets longer again uh-huh so it's sort, of, it's sort of in between three and two in four yeah and then it gets shorter again in, in i mean it's a little it's still a little bit longer just the normal Tom Cruise haircut that he has now. And then Fallout's about the same, right? Yeah. Fallout and Rogue Nation are basically the same in terms of how he looks. I mean, the worst... What do you reckon the worst haircut is? Probably Mission Impossible 1. He probably yeah, looks... Yeah, fine. Way. He just looks... I don't know. I think... I mean, if you want me to be genuine, he looks terrible, too. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, it's the best, like, ironic haircut, for sure. No, no, no. I like the... I like no, the no, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Ghost Protocol. So, I like that basically we've, like, we went through... So, we talked about six. Mm-hmm. While we were talking about six, we kind of talked about the previous entries in that conversation. <laughs> then then we went back and talked about each individual entry in the previous yeah, one. We'll then we went back and ranked them all and said another comment about every single entry. This is a great This is the best. Unedited, yeah. <laughs> Just our Mission Impossible was talking about the Mission Impossible franchise. No, no, so based on our two lists, let me just put them together. And if we give them, we can come up with a, a list where we list. combine them together oh, yeah. and we get a definitive ranking. Let's do that. So, so, so from lowest to highest, again, to extend this torch for our listeners. <laughs> they love this. What are you talking about? All right. Um, so number six in our joint ranking is Ghost Protocol which is Mission Impossible 4, I should say. Um, number 5 is... Number 5 and 4, they're equal, um, which is Mission Impossible 5, Rogue Nation, and Mission Impossible 3. They both had a combined total of 5 points. So moving into position 3, we have Mission Impossible 2, and occupying the first two positions with an equal 10 points is Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 6 Fallout. So basically, I, I got what I wanted. <laughs> well, I got I got Mission Impossible 2 to second place. Wow, good is... job. So proud of you. Technically third, but... <laughs> so there we go. Wasn't that exciting? That's the definitive ranking of the franchise. According to science. Uh huh. And if anyone says otherwise, they are wrong. (laughs) 